This is Psych Bates. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Psych Debates. We're excited to have you guys back on. Yes, so, so excited, especially for today. Today's speaker is is a, a real personal hero of mine. Uh, I could not be more excited to, to, to talk to this particular presenter, uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes. Yeah, I know. Um, who's the... The the, uh, the man who had brought the the concepts of the therapy act to the the forefront or ACT, although as you'll learn, he's not fond of spelling it out rather than just saying <laughs> act. <laughs> absolutely, and and I, I I yes, absolutely. I remember the first time uh, Jonathan talked to me about act um, as we were starting residency and not really knowing what it is. Um, and kind of coming across it multiple, multiple times in different clinical contexts and, and, and finding myself gravitating towards his concepts. Now, um, just a little bit about Dr. Stephen Hayes. He's the Nevada Foundation Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Analysis um, at the University of Nevada. He wrote over 47 books and published over almost 700 scientific articles. Um, he focused his career on understanding human language and cognition and applying it to treating folks and ended up developing relational frame theory, which we'll, we'll talk about, is essentially um, a theory around human higher cognition. Um, and that's guided uh, his development of ACT, the Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, now, which is pretty popular nowadays and is evidence-based form of psychotherapy that um, all sorts of uh, mental health professionals use to treat people. Yeah, no, exactly. We hear about in our clinics, you you know, it's very common that a psychiatrist will get training, at least in some level of ACT itself. Um, so, so it's a very pertinent for uh, certainly people in the health field. But I think honestly, more and more, it's going to be permeating and it has started permeating uh, popular culture, too. Um, it, it, um, it, to, to tell you all a little bit about what we're talking about today, this episode. So we're going to be talking about what is ACT. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about how ACT is, well, it's a type of therapy, but rather than being what you might think of as like a top-down therapy where somebody has depression, we do, you know, X therapy. It's more about a, a process of what, with whatever somebody is struggling with. And it's really specific to whatever that person's values are in particular, as, as you learn more about. Um, it uses, uh, there's several concepts or, or pillars in ACT, um, which we're going to mention all of them throughout the, the talk. One of them we spend a few, a fair amount of time on, such as cognitive diffusion, which is not taking thoughts seriously. So to speak, take, taking a step backwards and, and, and actually looking at the thoughts rather than um, making the thoughts part of our, our story. Um, it is, uh, it, it's, it's something that you can, you can apply clinically and, and he's going to tell us, tell us all about it. So we're, we're super, super excited. Also, we're going to, we're going to be talking about, um, a little bit about relational frame theory and the development of the relational frame theory. And essentially it's, it's, it's a theory around language and language is a behavior, uh, which is when I heard was really mind blowing for me. So I'm excited for you guys to hear about that. Um, and so without any further delay, uh, we invite our guest, Dr. Hayes, to Psych Debates. Hey, 
All right, Dr. Hayes, we're really excited about having you on. Uh, me and Jonathan have kind of been going back and forth about this episode. I remember the first time Jonathan has men mentioned ACT to me and feeling kind of lost in all the acronyms of different therapies <laughs> from ACTs to CBTs to DBTs to MBCTs to BPTs and kind of <laughs> feeling like, <laughs> yes, and, and maybe potentially getting an SVT in the process, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> And so, uh, we're, you know, I think uniquely ACT has come up multiple times since then uh, in clinical context, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in acute settings and also in outpatient settings. And as it continued to come up, I, I, I thought to it would be something that I would really like to learn about and involve and include as part of my arsenal, if you will, um, as a psychiatrist. Yeah. And so just for... For our audience in general, what is ACT? What is ACT? Yeah, you got to say ACT. ACT sounds like to me like ECT, and I go all the way back. To the <laughs> there, so I kinda, oh, whoa. But, uh, yeah, it's an alphabet soup out there, but we've been on a different wing, a tradition. And when I say the we, I mean, starting with my lab and a small number of folks 40 years ago, and then here we are with just about to pass 1,000 randomized trials and be distributed by the World Health Organization. And on most of the lists of evidence-based work, you know, it, it's gone through a transition. But I like thinking of it not as this a discrete thing, but as an attempt to try to dig down into processes of change and get the smallest set to do the most good in mental health, yes, but also in behavioral health, but also in social wellness and in you know, issues of uh, performance and um, uh, things like uh, prejudice, stigma, and things of that kind. And here, uh, 40 years later, I think we have that. Uh, so you're talking to somebody who's kind of a geek, but we've been able to come up with a set of processes of change that uh, that are refined and measured and, and un pretty well understood that fit together in a coherent whole and that... Uh, do a heck of a lot of good. I think, uh, based on where things are going, it it tends to open up the door to connection with other models, other approaches, etc. Because we're not very grabby about the techniques or the labels you use. You know, we avoid certification of therapists who really tried to keep a kind of an open science, open uh, source approach. And so people combine it with other things. And um, because of that, people seem to bring their best. You know, they, they modify it culturally or in different, you know, countries around the world and to fit different settings. So I'm going to have to define what that set is for folks. But um, that's not a very complicated set. And it's one that has deep resonance. People understand it. It's in our wisdom traditions. It's in your heart and head. Uh, it just isn't necessarily in your go-to set of skills that you deploy when, when you, you need something for reasons that I can explain. So that's what ACT is. It's um, an attempt to dive down to a really small set of processes that uh, apply everywhere to almost everything that humans want to do. Wow. Yeah, no, and I, th I think that's... Uh, I, and I think that's uh, really unique in that context. And what I mean by that is... The way you defined it was not, this is a treatment for disorder, um, right. which I thought was particularly unique in ACT versus other therapies, or at least 
as a resident psychiatrist, how I view some of the other therapies uh, as treating a particular disorder. Yeah, we were kind of transdiagnostic before transdiagnostic was cool. And we're so tra radically transdiagnostic, even that word is too, you know, too small of a, a shirt for us. And, you know, but it's not unique. It's just been forgotten because when evidence-based psychotherapy and psychological intervention started, the real push from that started with the behavior therapists. I mean, you could find, you know, Maslow or Rogers or so forth talking about science, but the kind of way they did science, it didn't really look like you know, the kind of way that science looked in other parts of healthcare. Um, and behavior therapy did. But uh, at that, in the early days, it was to try to take those evidence-based principles and put them into a formula that fit the particular individual and their needs, functional analysis, applying principles drawn mostly from the animal learning lab. But it was only three or four years, seven, eight years, somewhere in the really that being popular before people say, wait a minute, guy, you got to deal with cognition, you got to deal with emotion, you got to, you can't just be thinking reinforcement, stimulus control, skills. Nah. Now, to this day, if you go to the list of evidence based procedures, those early days still apply. I mean, they were never uh, lost, which is cool because then you're building a progressive way forward. You know, if you're a parent and you want to learn something about how best to raise your kids, you're probably going to learn something about trying to use positive reinforcers. You might learn time out. You might, you know, it'll just be kind of in the soup of the advice that you get from your pediatrician, et cetera. It's tried and true. It works. It's helpful, but it's not enough. Well, I'm old enough. You're, you're looking at or talking to a really old dude. Uh, just turned 74. And, uh, you know, I saw my first session of behavior therapy in 1967, which is only one year after the first journal in behavior therapy. And so I've seen this whole shift and then cognitive behavior therapy and, and now the so-called third wave and what now seems to be evolving with this process-based approach. That's a 40-year journey. But it, it really harkens back to the beginning. It's sort of, uh, you know, back to the future. Because what we're trying to do now is ideographic functional analysis instead of just top-down normative categories that are really poor fitting for reasons that I will get into. Um, Dr. Hayes, by, by ideographic. Um, I mean, based on the individual in their lives, what are the things that empower you? What are the things that interfere with you? So essentially it? like a subjective uh, kind of process. Is that accurate? To be subjective, it, you know, it could be very objective. I mean, just think of it like it would personalized medicine. I mean, if my brother's a physician, he has given me permission to talk about this. He has prostate cancer, he's fighting it, and he's doing really well. But, you know, it wasn't 48 hours after that diagnosis that he was, you know, sprinting down to UCSF and, you know, you know, trying to get the special tests that really dial into the particular kinds of uh, cancer that he has and what's going on, you know, and given his genome, epigenome and all the rest. And you probably do the same. I mean, it, the knowledge isn't enough really to do all of what, but, you know, Steve Jobs, as he's dying, he's getting a full genomic workup because he could afford it back then and nobody else could. Well, now you can, you can spend a few hundred bucks and you can get it. Now we don't know enough, but we do know enough 
to know that treatment will be better if it's fit as knowledge cats up, catches up to the specific geographic, person-specific needs. But we can't have a science of one person. We need a science that goes across people. But if you have a science that goes across people by fuzzing them up into error terms, that's not good science. And in the history of medicine, that has not been the best way to progress. We would never have the survival rates we have on cancer if they're still botanizing cancer. You know, the pink bottles and the blue petals and the, you know, the lesion that's this color or shape like that. People still were dying until you got back in the lab and you really figured out, you know, what was turning off and on and genes and, you know, how was this really going? In psychiatry, we have, and psychology, we, we're kind of at the back of the pack and we need to get at the front of the line because human human prosperity and human problems demand a fit that is not an ill-fitting suit, but a tailor-made suit for exactly what you want, exactly what your life is about, what you know how to do, what you're doing that's creating problems, what you can do to, to foster prosperity. And ACT thinks it's got a real leg up on that because we've spent 40 years trying to do it and the first 20 years really in the wilderness with nobody watching i mean literally no randomized trials nobody cares five people at the talks year after year after year yeah but now now it pays off now i can sit here and say we're targeting the processes that account for more than half of everything we know about how psychosocial therapies work regardless of their form nobody else can do that but nobody else did what we did and it wasn't our idea it was the early idea that i just stubbornly refused to give up on <laughs> I, so, I appreciate where that stubbornness has got us too um so so if i'm understanding correctly act as as a therapy it's not and you, you kind of alluded to this it's not so much okay person has depression we're going to do this in, in therapy. It's more like person has some level of, of discomfort in some way or, or, or some way of, yeah, just experiencing yeah. something they don't want. And you, you listen to exactly what it is that, they, that is the problem for them. So no two patients are going to be the same. Well, we already know that. I mean, if you look at the STAR-D trial with you know, 3,700 uh, uh, so-called major depressive disorders and over 1,000 different combinations just of the limited list of signs and symptoms that are in the DSM. And then you say, well, how many people had a combination that was so rare, rare that it only applied to a little over one one-hundredth of a percent? In other words, in that whole 3,700, there were only four other people who had the same collection, and the answer was almost half. Well, that's a joke. That's not a diagnostic system. I mean, the single most popular diagnosis is not otherwise specified. <laughs> I mean, this is a bad joke, and we've lived inside, and you know, and it had good heart. Sometimes it worked. Syndromes sometimes lead to functional entities, diseases. Sometimes they do. And if if there are latent diseases, which I don't think there are, but if there are, that would be awesome. But how many years do we chase that? How many billions do we have to spend before we say, wait a minute? Maybe we need to do something that's a little different, that's really more individually focused and process-based. And, and impractical, it, it sounds like. like very, right, like you're, you're not waiting for us to have, you know, however many research dollars for the new drug or new whatever. It's let's right here and now focus on what's the problem for the patients. Well, exactly right. And then 
you know, we have made a lot of progress in terms of, you know, how to deliver uh, treatment that is of use to people, but it's despite our uh, categories, not because of our categories, we've had to fight them. And then you you get in and you say to the practicing psychiatrist or psychologist or mental health worker in general, here's what the science shows. And you look at the, you know, the smooth curves that are there on that graph as it walks out the weeks and maybe there's a divergence and fits some sort of statistical model. Then they get in and see individuals and it's chaos city. You know, they've got all these different combinations. It's really hard to diagnose them. And when you do interventions, it's, whoa, it's a roller coaster ride. This week's, it went in the wrong direction. This way, then you start looking and you say, you know what? There's pretty good evidence in some of these treatments that things going in the wrong direction are really going in the right direction. I'll give you an example, classic CBT for depression, you know, for entanglement with uh, sadness, but we'll call it depression or whatever emotion has a spike in around session three or four with the classic and people who get worse are the ones who are going to be the best off at the end. Do you know that? My guess is, do you, do you, I'm all serious. Do you know that? You're you saying know? the people have worse depression yeah. symptoms, they're going to end up being better. Hit, in the long well, run. you're getting better and then you hit a spike around session four mm-hmm. and the, it's a characteristic across a bunch of people. And when we get into individual focus we start seeing this in other other ways but in ways that will give us even more information but those are the ones that will have the best outcomes from classic uh becky and bt now i think adele hayes is the person you want to look at with these high density longitudinal measures now still done at the level of the collective but and you can kind of understand it what's happening is these are the folks where it's digging in and they're beginning to expand their lives and they're 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 like I, I'm going to do it. I'm pushing out. Well, boom! They're hitting things that they don't have the skills to deal with. Oh, you know, I, no, not that. I can't do that. No, just and it, but it's actually a sign of progress. You know, you took the lid off the basement uh, door, and you're down in now facing the monsters, and you're temporarily feeling overwhelmed. But that very process predicts that if you keep doing it, and you're the kind of person who will, that this intervention will help so you know i haven't even said what act is yet but uh, as we get into it ideographically we see this over and over again that the individual trajectories matter and so i'm a little cautious about using top-down normative categories uh, depression and the rest until we model the individual because every voice matters their background matters, their culture matters, their goal matters, their history matters. And it's a, more like a complex network than it is a one-size-fits-all thing for a category. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I think, simpler. It's There's only so many ways to get messed up. It's not an infinite number of ways to get messed up. And so uh, the... And so, Dr. Hayes, what would be what would be some of those basic principles? I, I know you mentioned Indiographic as one of them. Uh, what would be some of the basic principles or tenets that would uh, be the pillars that would create a therapy-like act? Yeah. So, it, you got to deal with the psychological level. You got to give a you know a look at the sociocultural level, relationships, the family, sex, and so forth. You got to deal with diet, sleep, exercise, you know, brain circuits, health, biophysiological level. So, but at the psychological level, 
as a rough sort, not hard divisions, you're going to have to look at how the person handles emotion, cognition, attention, sense of self, motivation, and overt behavior. And, you know, that's kind of in RDOC, the NIMH's attempt to go in a process-based direction. Unfortunately, not one that was done openly and without pre-bias. It came in already with the director of NIMH saying, we know that it's brain circuits and genes. No, you don't know that. You do not know that. Don't say that. Let science say that to you. Don't say it to the world. But that has the similar kinds of divisions. And when you look at those dimensions, you look at, well, what restrains and constricts? What allows us to vary in ways that are helpful that we can step forward? How can we retain those things? And in what context do they apply? So I'm going to click across those six on the psychology end, and then we can look at the social and the uh, biophysiological end, if you wish, But because uh, that's important too. Uh, emotion, what messes you up? Being closed off to emotions or clinging to emotions? Messes you up. What would help you up? Being more open, learning from them, being able to dive into them, not wallow, to be able to learn. Uh, but also to be able to sort of carry them with you because some of the emotions that people have with the kind of histories they have coming to see the three of us. If you had that history, you'd be on the other side of the consultant room. So that's one. Uh, acceptance is our usual way of saying it, but it includes also non-clinging. Cognition. Well, you have a lot of thoughts and some of those thoughts are not helpful and some are helpful. And, and sometimes they really get focused on, they become central. You need to be able to back up a little bit enough even to see them and to learn from them. Uh, but to do it in a way that's sort of open and flexible, kind of the way you might listen to a conversation going on uh, between somebody sitting at the table next to you. Some of that's of interest, some of it isn't. Some of these th things that are in your head are echoes of past abuse histories, of you know people who did things that are really hurtful to you, et cetera. Some of them are things you came up with yourself. But you better have enough flexibility to not get wrapped around the axle of thoughts or you're going you're gonna to stop, focus, and your whole world will narrow down. You know, Am I lovable? Is life worth living? Whatever the th maybe I should kill myself. And whatever the thing is, bleh. You're going to have attentional. Those two are, are, are really important because those two things, thoughts and feelings and bodily sensations, memories, the kind of things that go with them are the single most powerful repertoire narrowing things we have. You know, I'm a panic disordered person in recovery. That's kind of where I came from. Go inside a panic attack. And, I mean, you're not thinking of much else other than how can I breathe? Uh, so they wrap they narrow everything. You need to be able to come into this present moment. That's where we live. But you have this evolutionary recent thing of language and cognition that allow you to disappear into the past or into the feared future and not notice that that's going on right now in your head. Those first skills help with your thoughts, but then the other skills of the attentional flexibility to either narrow or broaden or shift or stay what you're attending to and you know decline your mind's invitation to attend to 
uh, ruminative patterns or fear of the future when you've got things right in front of you uh, to be dealt with. And you need to do that from a kind of consciousness that connects you in consciousness to others, that is a more spiritual side of you, you might say, that isn't the kind, the part of you that you categorize and fight fault with, but the kind that showed up when you're around age three, and from there forward, you're just looking from behind your eyes. And connecting with that gives you a solid place to stand where you can face the hell of your own history. So we need to consciously coming into the moment in a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way. If you do those four things, that's a pretty good operational definition of what mostly people call mindfulness nowadays. It's not necessarily classic Buddhist or Hindu or whatever. I mean, but it's there in all the wisdom traditions, from, you know, from the Sufis to the Christian mystics or the uh, folks that in the Kabbalah, whatever, you know, it's been there in human functioning and in our deeper clinical traditions, those first four. But that's for a purpose, which is what? Living a life. What kind of life? The kind of life that you want to live that's worth living. Well, what do you mean worth living? I don't know. You tell me. And so we got to go over to how you get engaged in life. What are your values? What are the qualities of being and, and before doing? Before we move to values, I, 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 you know what I thought was really interesting about that, and this is something that you know I've, 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 I've read across. Um, I came across when I was reading some of your work, is that a lot of this focuses on, rather than focusing on the content of the cognition or the content of the emotion, uh, but rather focusing on the context, which yeah. I, I thought was a kind of a unique paradigm shift, really, because I'm yeah. no longer concerned with what an emotion might be, whether it's I feel a certain type of way, but rather how do I relate to that emotion and what function that emotion serves um, and how I can maybe perhaps observe it or distance myself or get closer to it, uh, which I thought yeah. was great. You put uh, emotion in the context of openness, curiosity, learning from it, not wallowing it, not clinging to it. Ocean, emotions start having a really cool role, role in your life, even things you call bad emotions. I mean, our cognitive system is so silly, it'll tell us that it's bad to be sad when somebody close to us dies. You know, and, and we're silly enough that within a few weeks, we may be scripting meds to help people through this sad, bad emotion. No, it's not a bad emotion. I mean, grief is a emotion that people go through to deal with loss. And it has deep meaning. So if you are willing not to wallow, but just open up, you can learn from it, and then you can move move on with it. Uh, it's not a simple thing to do, but life can give you those skills. How did cognitive diffusion uh, come into play? How did that develop in that in the context of those cognitions and well, emotions? We, yeah, we discovered early on that verbal rules, kind of in your head, narrow down your life. But also, it was really easy to show in the lab. They made you really insensitive to the environment. And if you have heavy expectations about how things should be and ought to be and used to be, and man, you don't even know what world you're living in. I mean, you just, you don't can't, you know, you get in this, the, these feature positive kind of cognitive bias traps where you can't even see what's going on around you. And then you take that same skill of that fusion, that entanglement, taking thoughts literally, you apply it to yourself. I'm great and grand, or I'm the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. And, you know, you act, this is so recent evolutionarily, you're actively filtering out sensory motor information. I mean, if you look at how psychedelic therapy 
works where you can actually look at what happens when you disrupt that in, in real time with fMRI studies and so forth. You can see that we're filtering out information like mad if it doesn't fit our story. We don't literally don't know the world we're living in unless we're more open to the kind of information that you get. And, and so we've got this kind of almost parasitic harnessing of midbrain structures that function like neurobiological gatekeepers to being able to contact your world. But and those verbal rules essentially are those the way the way we would talk to ourselves or the verbal yeah, rules. Yeah, I mean, in just way, in a, verbal formulations of how things should be, how you get from here to there. I mean, just the mm -hmm. stories you say about life and how it's well lived. And yeah, yeah. I feel like a good example of that I've heard is like, you know, the patient who maybe has depression and they feel like they're a bad parent. And so they say, I'm a bad parent. And so cognitive diffusion could be this like suggestion by the therapist or this practice by the patient of saying, oh, I'm not a bad, not necessarily saying I'm a bad parent. I'm saying I'm having a thought that I'm a bad parent or saying well, there, there is a thought that, that I'm a bad parent, something like that. It turns out if you just tag your experiences as experiences, if you observe and describe them, that reduces their domination. And you can see this even in imaging studies. I mean, I'm a bad parent versus I'm having the thought I'm a bad parent or land completely differently on you. And what had actually happened to you? Did you actually get, you know, like the judgment from God that you're a bad parent or did you have a thought? You had a thought. Okay. And what could you do with that thought? Well, you could notice it. And maybe you could do some things like, hey, you know, sometimes I get so entangled with thoughts about being a bad parent, I don't step up to parenting. Hmm. You know, like where the normal thing would be, oh, I'm such a bad parent. Meanwhile, not even noticing. Is that helping your kids right now? I, I feel like that's a good segue too to to start kind of bringing us back to values. and what Yeah, you were because it's earlier. the third. We can really summarize psychological flexibility, which is our term for all six. I've given you the first four, these mindfulness skills of openness and awareness. And there are two features, cognition, emotion, attention, sense of self. But then active engagement in life is the finer pillar and learning how to live a values-based life and create habits around it. And so when you have that more emotional cognitive openness and you're now here in the present, then it's possible before then no because values are where you know how to be hurt and then it's possible to say you know i really want this to be reflected in my behavior i stand for this i care about this but caring and pain are like two sides of the same thing if you really want to have committed relationships betrayals penetrate you through the heart and almost everybody i'm talking to has had that and so what are you going to do with a betrayal or with an abandonment or with a, a loss. Well, if you have that emotional openness, you can learn from that pain because what it suggests is you really care about that. Not that you can't have it. You really care about that. You want to know that. So how are you going to get somewhere if you don't know where you're going? So, okay, what could I do to build intimate, committed relationships in my life? What could I do to put love in my behavior? To behave lovingly. You're not going to get great relationships if you don't behave lovingly. It just ain't going to happen. And so when we're there and you have some values clarity, these are the qualities I want to manifest. Now we're back to behavior therapy. How do you how do you manifest things? How do you put them into your life? Well, one step at a time. All those skills and habits and commitments and one step at a time and small steps and repeated and 
all the things that we know how to do. So that's the three pillars of open, aware, and actively engaged, each with two aspects. That's the psychological flexibility model. And that's the one that uh, accounts for, if you give it just a little bit of its fellow travelers, self-compassion, behavioral activation, decentering, different ways of talking about the same thing, mindfulness, it already accounts for the majority of everything we know about how change happens in psychotherapy. So and I can give you the systematic review that proves that. Yeah, no, and I thought that was really interesting how values can be really teased out by examining the things that bring pain. Okay. Um, because I think that's much easier. I find that it is much easier for somebody to describe those things and to describe their values. And from underneath those things are essentially those values hidden. And so I thought that's really interesting. And I think it's pretty uh, approachable way for folks uh, to, to kind of start defining some of those more important values. Yeah, I like doing the, the first work a little bit so we get a clean shot at values without uh, just social approval or wishes and hopes for goals. Concrete goals are fine, but they come and go. But values are something more like a direction, like headed west. No matter how far you go, you can still head west. And you want to know what those are, even if along the way you have a goal of becoming a psychiatrist or getting a job or, you know, whatever. The four ways in that I know of are kind of uh, sweet, sour stories and heroes. And uh, the sour one is what we just mentioned is one that people often miss. In your distress, uh, you flip it over the other side of that sheet paper where you have all this distressing stuff is what you'd have to care about such that you were distressed when you were betrayed, let's say. It's usually implicit, people miss it. But if you unpack your sweet moments, as a psychiatry uh, resident, for example, pick a really sweet moment. It tells you something about the kind of psychiatrist you want to be. Absolutely. Or heroes. Just pick anyone who you look up to. They're a personal hero to you. I can almost guarantee you they stand for values that you would like to have in your life. You're not picking heroes because they have a Buick. And you're just not doing it. Nobody does that. So why are those heroes heroes? And then stories. If you really take responsibility for the narrative, you imagine you're creating a life story. If you can you know, own it, the authorship of that, uh, you know, right now, what do I want my life story to, what direction do I want to go in? I don't get to decide the details. I may have a cancer diagnosis I won't find out about till tomorrow, but I can darn sure pick whether or not it's a tragedy or a hero's journey. It, and it so those like are four a, ways in that I know of. It, to me, it sounds uh, in some way, it's almost like act is like a, like a culture, like, like you're setting the stage for the patient to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do by themselves by by creating the capacity to have that like that um open aware and actively engaged attitude yeah i th I, th I think it can be thought of that way i you know i think you know people will resonate with their religious and cultural traditions to these things because they're all in there we're discovering things that have been in humanity all along the only difference is science can simplify and that helps uh, but yeah, it is, I think, a 
kind of way of being. But uh, I don't usually talk about it too much that way, and, and more like this way, empowering you for how you want to be in your life, as opposed to, you know, the the act cult says this, and then you get the tattoo, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> no, I'm just not, I don't trust gurus, and I don't want to be a freaking guru, and, you know, and science can help us by filtering out what's not important and focusing on what is important. And these six things aren't everything. You still have to extend them socially. And you can do that. You know, for example, acceptance for emotion turns into empathy and compassion when you have other people's emotions. Open up to their emotions too and caring about their emotional life. Um, values to joint values, community values, shared values. And health back to the bottom side if you don't have health in there well this thing this life is not going to be very long so you better be caring about diet sleep and exercise and if you're constantly doing things that are harmful to your health what, what the heck's going on so that's the full kind of six psychological processes nested in two different levels the world within and the larger social community that's what we need to empower people to can i ask about the nest because i'm trying to i'm trying to conceptualize this maybe a little bit more here uh one of one layer of that being openness awareness and engagement yeah how how do those how do the how does the openness awareness and engagement manifest in those six pillars um is it that each you were mentioning that two there's two of each within can can you talk a little bit more about that and then also the world within and without you just mentioned yeah well they manifest some one reason why you want the six is that they look different enough that it's helpful to be talking about values or acceptance and uh, cognitive diffusion and so forth in, in ways that allow you to focus on it um but they really all kind of collapse together. The way I talk about it, it's like six sides of a box. You need six strong sides ranged together to have a strong box. If you have a couple of weak sides, you don't have a box at all. And um, you don't want to be just focusing on one. I mean, if you look at people's skill set, often they will have some things that are strong. They're really clear in their values, et cetera, but they get stopped in their dead in their tracks by difficult emotions, whatever the thing might be. And so we want to make sure that you have the skills to be able to, to manage uh, those um, and then to be able to put them together. And um, fortunately, we know that those processes can change when you target them. And when they do, you see better outcomes almost everywhere the eye can see. Not because it's one, I don't be Pollyanna-ish, it's just that it for where we are scientifically, it's pretty well known it's going to bump you forward, whether you have an exercise goal or you're a relationship issue or you're entangled with uh, anxiety or have a cancer diagnosis that you're not ready to step up to. Um, so now I've lost the question you asked. Sorry, I, <laughs> oh, I guess my, my question was trying to understand because this is something that you mentioned that kind of I want to click in my head a little bit more, which is that these six principles are nested within, perhaps these six sides of the box are nested within openness, awareness, and engagement. And is that the content of the box? Is that what you're yeah, trying to Yeah, there's six to? sides. There's three pillars to simplify it, but it's really one thing. 
And when you measure it, you'll see that they're conceptually, because each relates to and strengthens the other, even in our measures of them, they tend to come back to a single factor. It's uh, you know, a formative concept. It's, it's, it's not a reflective one. If you and in psychometrics, the way we measure things, sometimes some concepts require everything, you know, each feature then put together to have the whole thing. And uh, you see that regularly in medicine that you can't just uh, focus on one particular part of the system and expect the whole system to work well. You need the other features to support the, what you're doing in this one area. And that's like that psychologically. And so it's six that are three that are one. Psychological inflexibility, psychological flexibility, these uh, parallel processes that show us, slow us down or, or empower us and help us move forward. And yeah, oh, and then, oh, by the way, also our social cultural life and our, our biophysiological needs. But um, um, yeah, it's really one thing. Yeah, so I'm really curious also about, you know, when I heard about the, you know, development of ACT, it seems some of the origin or the origin of the theory is that the relational frame theory. Yeah. Uh, which seems to be one that is based on language and cognition. Yeah. Um, having, having read an excessive amount of self-help books before going to medical school, which <laughs> is part of the diet, um, I came across this concept called neurolinguistic programming, mm. which to me, when I came across relational frame theory later on, seemed quite similar. And I don't know if there is, and, and also another one was ment mentalization. So yes. how does one, um, how does one uh, balance these ideas or where do they align? Are they saying the same thing essentially? Not as RFT, but they they resonate. I mean, uh, mentalization comes out of the psychoanalytic work. Uh, you know, neurolinguistic programming came out of Milton Erickson's work, which is you know humanistic, systemic uh, kinds of things. And um, you know, they do have a take that's uh, well, mental, uh, neurolinguistic programming is somewhat contextualistic, for example, and it does have a take sort of on how the mind works that has some features that you'll see with diffusion some of the acty stuff the thing that we did that's different and this is what rft is you know i was looking for the the cognitive and psychological equivalent of something like reinforcement and it's pretty clear that you know non-human animals work in learning processes, they have certain features that are special. I mean, birds may respond to magnetism and, you know, eels may respond to electrical charges and we don't do either ones, but across the tips of these evolutionary branches, basic learning processes of operant and classical conditioning, which are half a billion years old, they happened in the Cambrian. In fact, that's why there's a Cambrian explosion because you could seek out niches where you know, uh, evolutionary pressure, like the phenotypic diversity. But uh, they do a pretty good job until they get to the human language. And they just do a lousy damn job. And so I wanted to figure out a way to come up with a behavioral theory of what even a word is. What is language? Where does it come from? And we think we've arrived at one. And there's about... 250, uh, uh, you know, uh, empirical studies on RFT now. If you have a kid, let's say, who doesn't 
uh, engage in hardly any language at all. You know, that you can get the behavior analysts in there doing relational frame training. They'll start off with the thing that Skinner taught them, and that'll take them up to a mental age of two. But if you want to push them along, you better find somebody who knows something about RFT, and they will push them along. And so if you have kids on the spectrum who don't have a sense of self, for example, they can't take the perspective of others. They never show empathy. They have some language functions, but it doesn't quite land with the same psychological reality. Well, you can use RFT to help establish that because we've unpacked you know, what is that sense of self? Where does it come from? And it comes from certain cognitive relations, I, you, here, there, now, then, that can be trained. And when they're trained, a person starts showing up behind their eyes that's more like the person that's behind your eyes and mine. Uh, you know, the consciousness changes and becomes different. So I wanted, and you won't get that from NLP. You know, you take an autistic spectrum disordered kid who can't talk, and put them in front of a psychoanalyst or, or um, you know, an NLP uh, person, and they're not going to know what the heck to do. I'm not talking down. I'm not saying, you know, they're bad because of that. I'm just saying, as I said, the very first thing, I'm a geek who wanted to know what the processes were. You know, we just kept digging until we hit solid ground. And um, because of that, we now have measures of implicit cognition, of, you know, bias, stigma, things like that, that are better than anything out there. We've got ways of helping people improve their intelligence. We uh, Even the so-called fluid intelligence, for some reason, is the part that they claim can't change. We, have, we can help establish a sense of self. We can do some really, really cool things. And, and I'm just not going like... Woo, you know, we, we got the answer, but go look at the data. And um, it's pretty impressive uh, what we can do with raising IQ or establishing a sense of self or helping with problem solving. How it applies clinically? Well, let me give you an example. If you think of cognition as something which is just a thing and you describe it the way we normally do, if you have a thought that you don't like, why wouldn't you try to get rid of it? Normally, you should try to get rid of something you don't like, right? If you view it, though, as a learned instance of relational framing, and you know that there's nothing in learning called unlearning, there's inhibition. That's not unlearning. You put a behavior that's been well established on extinction, come back 20 years later, and it's not there, they can learn it more quickly. They literally did it. This is kind of funny. Somebody did it with elephants because elephants never forget. That literally had been taught like 20 years earlier. They lived a long time. And sure enough, you know, the elephant had long since forgot the little task that they had been trained to do. But almost instantly, boom, there it is back. You know, and you'll go back through your repertoire. And, uh, well, if you think of cognition that way, then you start saying, wait a minute, well, my mind tells me I have to get rid of something if I can't get rid of it because there's no delete button that's healthy in the nervous system. Uh, that might not be wise. Why? Because I'm creating neurobiological tracks from here to there every time I try to get rid of it. I have to at least think about it to get rid of it. If I, if I try to get rid of it by thinking of something else, it begins to evoke it. You know that, the, the data on thought suppression. On, and you've everybody I'm listening to talk to right now has been through it. 
you know, if you've had a breakup and then you start listening to your favorite music that really helps you not think about it, about three or four days later, you're crying when the song comes on. Because it's right there. That's how fast it happens. You just programmed, you just grooved another rot in the underlying neurobiology from here to there so that now even that song, which used to be soothing, is reminding you of the loss. And so you better be wiser than that. And diffusion acceptance comes out of just thinking of cognition as learned behaviors of a particular for sort that once established will never go away. So then what are you going to do when nothing you do will do? You better figure out a way to diminish their impact, not their frequency, not their form. Because if you try to diminish their frequency or form, you're increasing them, not decreasing them. Now, that's not logical, but it is psychological. That's how the, that's how the brain works. But we can diminish the impact. So if you take a, a thought that's really, really painful, that's really, you know, just try it out. I mean, sing it. Distill it down to a single word. Say it over and over again. Say it very slowly. Play around with the paralinguistic cues that maintain meaning. There's a thousand different things you can do. The things you're trying to hide from others, if you don't do this unless you're ready. But get a t-shirt printed and wear it. You know, you can diminish the impact of the hell of your own history. There's a whole bunch of ways to do it. And those self-help books will walk you through it. And the protocols will teach you how to do it. And if you remember to do it the next time you're hit with something, not even the thing you initially sought treatment for, it's going to be helpful to you because we all need to know how to put cognition in its place. I I, I so appreciate that. I remember listening or, or I was reading um, uh, The Happiness Trap by, by Russ mm -hmm. Harris, which is, is an ACT book uh, or a book um, that talks about ACT. And uh, I remember them, him talking about how, you know, try, try saying the thing in like the Mickey Mouse voice, you know, right. try, you know, you know, create some, some distance with that as part of like the, the story of, of, of your suffering. Um, it, it actually, it makes me think though, like, and I, I know you mentioned there are protocols for how to do this, but let's say I talk to my patient and I say, yeah. you know, th they're going through something really painful and I say, well, just, you know, talk it through slowly. They might not feel like I'm validating them. <laughs> so yeah, I wonder exactly. how, yeah, how, how might you bring that up? Well, two things. One, do it, do it yourself with your own stuff first, because you got to need see how hard it is when it's your stuff before you easily do that with someone else because it can look like ridicule and it can be very poorly timed. Timed right, humor is awesome. Timed wrong, it's awful. It, it has power. Don't use it frivolously. But uh, if people are interested just in diffusion methods, for example, you can get to a, a, a TEDx talk I gave that walked through 12 uh, the diffusion methods, I was talking to people here at the Davidson Academy, which are folks who have 99.9% uh, IQs or above, you know, it's the it's academy here at the UNR where people come from around the world, you know, these nine-year-old geniuses and stuff like that, and with no more ability to manage their mental health, manage, mind you, usually worse, because that mental skill doesn't translate necessarily to psychological wisdom. And 
I walk through a bunch of those methods, but I finish with one that I want to say to folks now, just so you get the feeling of it, of taking something that's really sticky and difficult and then remembering how old it is and try to find something that has a sense it's old. And then taking the time to picture what you looked like if you can go way back, you know, like that fear of being loved or or, or not, not being lovable or being part of the group or not being smart enough or, you know, it, you can probably find it when you're six, seven, eight years old. Take time to sort of mentally create that little boy or girl in front of you and take this thought that you want to get a little bit of perspective on, not to get rid of it, but just that it's not, you know, smothering you, but it's just more off to the side. And ask the child in front of you to say it in his or her little voice. And uh, what would you do if that actually happened? And if I had the time to really walk through it, I mean, a lot of people tear up just at the thought. It's uh, And almost universally, they want to do things like, I'd hug the kid, or I'd say it's going to be okay, or I hear you, or, you know, and people are saying things, you know, like I'm not good enough or it's not safe. And, you know, people have been in abusive homes and they've been without any way to man. Well, now you're an adult. You're, it, it's not the same thing, but you still have that same programming. And so diffusion is being able to not get rid of or ridicule or diminish in a in this kind of dismissive way, but to back up enough to see the thought as it is and the metaphor I use, it's like looking at a painting with your nose on the painting versus stepping back three or four feet. With your nose on the painting, you can't see anything. And some of our patients, our clients, have been living with the nose on the, on the painting of their history. And if we can get them to back up just a little bit and be a little kinder to themselves, and if you would come to mind, you know, I'd give that kid a hug if I heard that. Well, how about you when you're brushing your teeth tomorrow morning? Like, where did you suddenly no longer deserve self-compassion? And I mean, you're going to see people on your on your uh, list uh, just routinely if you're doing clinical work, but also just watch yourself, who will treat themselves with amazing cruelty, and they would never do that to somebody who is young struggling with things like that even though they themselves started there even with this thought so be careful of the humorous ones time them well apply it to yourself let your patients see that you are willing to sort of be a fellow traveler Yes, absolutely, if it's apt, if it fits, you know, compulsive self-disclosure, you know, it's not your therapy, it's your clients, but you're two human beings in a horizontal relationship. You're not up here with the client down there, you know, you, you get in there and um, absolutely share what you know when it is helpful to the client. Hmm. I'm like wanting to get a little bit theoretical or maybe back to the theoretical away from the clinical okay. a little bit um i'm i was really mind blown with uh with the statement that language it seems that a language is behavior which is some something that i did not conceptualize in that way before and it seems like language is behavior and that's attached to thought and there's a lot of links there thought to language and language as behavior and trying to conceptualize 
how those things came about yeah. to be. I know there's a lot of competing theories on, on how language com comes about, whether language is formed behaviorally, uh, you know, picking it up basically based on uh, what I'm hearing and collecting that as data and reincorporating different environment or, uh, you know, the work that Chomsky did on, on language, which is very different. Um, and, and also the jump between thought and language and trying to think about how those two things are linked. And maybe I am geeking out on this a little bit, but I'm curious to hear your uh, opinion or take on this. Yeah, we get caught up in the form. And sometimes people hear me saying, you know, that uh, thought is words. No, it's it's symbolic. I mean, it could be images. It can be it doesn't have to be be words. Um, there are a lot of opinions out there, but one of the things I would say is that if you want a theory of language and cognition that's relatively adequate, uh, could you ask people to do things with it that otherwise wouldn't be there and if that theory weren't there? So ask Chomsky, who's actually turned against his early ideas. Chomsky today is not the Chomsky that you're talking about, and he actively uh, has overturned some of those ideas, but you know, ask them what they can do in terms of things like helping kids who can't talk or to set up a reading program or to have a therapy uh, that works. I think that's a fair challenge and RFT is ready to step up to it. You know, I come out of the animal learning tradition and if we're gonna find what's different at the tip of this evolutionary branch uh, called uh, you know, Homo sapiens today, we better be able to explain in an evolutionarily sensible way how it could happen. And I can, do a, a quick version of the geek of it because there's three things that almost everybody agrees humans are spectacularly good at uh, uh, cognition uh, culture and cooperation the three c's and almost all of the folks out there tried to build an account of human functioning that starts with cognition or some skinner for example culture i start with cooperation and why because Multi-level selection evolutionarily, when you have a species that that is evolving in small bands and troops, we're the social primates where, yes, individual selfishness can pay off, but also you can, in the group, dampen that down enough that you can get selection working at the level of the troop. That's the kind of monkey we are. I mean, we're not monkeys, but you know what I mean. And so what difference would it make? Well, I'll give you an example. Here's something that babies do at around age 12, and if they don't do it, they don't develop normal language. We know that. Yeah, I think it's pretty close to a smoking gun. You can have theories about why. I'll give you my answer. But if you have an object and you name it, like you know, if I'm holding up my glasses and say these are glasses, and with just a few words having been trained to, to a kid, I now say, where are the glasses? That little baby will try to orient, look around, try to find the glasses. In other words, you train object name you'll get name object for free train it in one direction you'll derive it in two and you can put it into networks you know if you said you know the glasses uh, make this sound woo, woo, woo. and then I, I could say uh, uh, what sound does this make and hold up the object and you'd be able to say it even though you had never heard that before so you learn it in one direction but you put it in two and then you put it in networks to change what you do that's a ditty that is 40 years of work of relational frame theory. But where did that come from? Well, if you have some joint attention skills, as, as, uh, as some understanding of intentionality of others, 
and some basic theory of mind skills as being a social primate, all of which you can show in babies in six, seven, eight, nine months before they have even their single word, first single word. I mean, if you point, you know, a gorilla baby will look where gorilla mama's head is looking, a, gorilla, a human baby look where mom's finger is pointing. So you got that kind of social referencing, joint attention, theory of mind. If you come in and, you know, you're picking up the toys with your baby and then you point at a toy, they'll try to get that toy and put it in the box. But if a stranger comes in and gets down and points at that toy, they'll pick up the toy and try to give it to the stranger. Like the baby understands intentionality. They're a social being really, really starting with the first moment as a neonate that mama's eyes hit and they dumped endorphins in their brain. You know, they're they're part of a social community, right? Okay, here's where it goes. Let's say I don't have any language in human functioning at all. These are hominids. I mean, presumably, it's actually probably not homo sapiens. It goes back before that. But it's within the last 2.8 million years because the language-trained chimps don't do what I'm about to tell you. And that's 2.8 million years ago that we branched off. If, if you uh, it, take that baby and train them in one direction, they'll, they'll, uh, well, they'll drive in two, but the troop started. So imagine that I have a characteristic name for an object. Lots of animals have that. See a snake, characteristic hoop. Let's say now you respond when you hear it. Yeah, but do you respond in a way that shares the perspective of the person? So instead of glasses, I'm going to look around. I'm going to, okay, I see an apple on my desk. Suppose I teach the word apple. Now a member of my troop is across the ravine and I say apple. Would that, would that social primate bring me an apple? If they do, they've done what your 12-month-old baby just did but now internalized. In other words, you learned a name-object relation in one direction, you derived it in two. Cooperation will give you that, I believe. So I think what's happened, this is a geeky answer, but this is a correlational frame theory, that we learned name-object, object-name, bidirectional, learn it in one direction, drive it in two, because within our troops, we start doing that as an expansion of cooperation that helped us compete with other tribes and bands. And then we started growing from there. What your baby does very soon after the 12 month period where they're learning, they start looking around. And if you use a, a sound that they haven't heard before, they try to find an unfamiliar object and they derive a relation between the two. When the language explosion happens, Chomsky's big concern about behavioral thinking, it's because you get this relation of difference. This is a different word. That's a different object. They must be the same. And, you know, this isn't just a theory. I actually did this with my now 34-year-old uh, uh, son, who's about 10, 34, when he was a baby, and it's the that's kind of a famous study now called the Charlie study uh, where we walked out the development and he sure enough merged what we can now call stimulus equivalence, name, object, object, name. And the next one was that he got difference leading to name, object, object, name. Now it's a geeky answer, but let me just say this. If you really want a theory of how language works that will fit what we know about how evolution works 
that fits the three C's I just talked about and that you can apply and use. Uh, RFT is a pretty good, not very well known. Geeky, little geeky, a little hard to master. But it, you can actually get on top of it, even use it clinically. You begin to sort of hear your client's language in a different way. And you begin to really think about how can I intervene even at that level of language, call it act or not. Mm -hmm. That make any sense? You encourage me to go. No, no, I no, I really appreciate that explanation. I'll probably have to listen to it again to to, <laughs> to fill up fully uh, pick up the nuances. But as we're running out on time here, I just have maybe a biased question on my end, um, okay. and I say that with full disclosure. Is there any room? Um, is there any room for the unconscious in RFT? Well, this is a you know from the behavioral point of view the unconscious is where we start right because we don't assume that dogs cats and the rest are conscious in the way that we're conscious mm. now they've been increasing in an evolutionary step-by-step -step way of greater and greater uh, ability to interact with the consistencies between their environment the world within and without and that's one reasonable definition of consciousness i believe but you know, if you really wanted to, well, if you mean by unconscious, you know, learning things that are experiential, implicit, that you can't describe, that you don't know verbally. I mean, that's old home week for behavioral people, for animal learning people. But what's spooky, usually for most clinical folks, is the unconscious. What's spooky for people like myself is what you and I are doing right now. Like, how is that even possible? And I just gave you an analysis. So... Let me give you an example in a more practical way. But, uh, you know, we're really, really comfortable uh, with uh, learning that is experiential, but beyond words. I mean, why is there so much em emphasis on emotional openness and deepening in ACT? It's not because we are touchy-feely people necessarily, freaking behavior therapists originally. Why would we be the ones to be? Well, because... So much of our learning is embodied, it's felt, it's sensed, or it's even beyond that. You may know it, but not even know that you know it. You might even know how to sense it, but you do know how to respond to it. You have a kind of a, uh, an aura or a sixth sense or something. And learning how to observe and describe that is helpful. You know, lexithymia is a really, really bad thing. And, uh, but, uh, uh, learning how to integrate that with human consciousness which is this almost break now in what consciousness means because now it's self-reflective it's verbal it's symbolic uh that part of you dominates over everything else i mean that part of you will say it's got all the answers blah 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 i mean most of your clients if you ask them they're doing what's logical reasonable sensible and pathological I mean, they're doing what their mind told them to do. So they've got a good answer between their ears that doesn't play well in their feet and hands. And so I do think there's a real important place for clinical work that dives into the depths of things that go beyond easy categorization, analysis, awareness, rules, all the rest of that. And uh, I mentioned psychedelics uh, earlier because ACT is so active now and what's going on there. And that's a perfect example of, uh, you know, how language and cognition can so dominate us that uh, uh, we almost don't know where we are anymore. Our system is filtering things out before it even gets to the 
cortex. And so, of course, we don't know it. Well, sometimes that's harmful. And I agree with that. Uh, Dr. Hayes, I, I, uh, I, I feel like I could talk for you and, and keep on learning <laughs> for the rest of the night. Uh, I, I want to uh, draw our, our session today towards a close and, and check in if there's any last things that you wanted to make sure to communicate to the audience or, or any book recommendations as well that you may have. Yeah, a couple things. Um, of course, they can follow me by going to my website, just my name at .com, Stephen C. Hayes. But commercial over, I don't spam people and just one click opt out. Uh, I want people to know that if there's anything I've said in here that is just halfway interesting, you can pr pursue it easily for free online. And uh, one that I really like because it's there's a certain amount of credibility to it, but also a certain amount of depth to it. Uh, the World Health Organization has spent the last eight years trying to figure out how to help people who are in wars. And they came to me those years ago and uh, asked me if that could help because we're so radically transdiagnostic, we're not even transdiagnostic anymore. And when people go through war, everything goes to hell. I mean, just everything. You sleep, your, your relationships fall apart, you know, you're not eating properly, everything. And yes, of course, mental health. Um, uh, you know how bit.ly links work, B-I-T period L-Y? Go forward slash and then World Health Organization with initials, just who, capital, W-H-O, and underline, and then act, although I'll say it, A-C-T, I hate A-C-T, but who, underline, A-C-T, all capitalized except for the underline. And what will it give you? It'll give you a free website with a cartoon book and audio tapes that who is taking the time to put into 21 different languages. And you'll see on that website from who, not from me. So don't be getting saying I'm making claims, saying that this is of use to anybody who's experiencing stress for any reason in any circumstance, almost word for word. That's what it says. And we're putting it right now into the Ukraine. It was originally developed uh, in Uganda with South Sudanese refugees. It's been tested with gold standard RCTs, you know, the, the kind of things who can do with every bell and whistle on it with uh, Syrian refugees in Turkey and then now in the EU. It can prevent the development of mental disorders by 50% at follow-up. And it has an effect as a self-help program that's as large as uh, uh, self-help in the developed world. Why am I mentioning that? Because I'm just saying... Um, you know, never mind all of the prideful kind of names, categories, labels, whatever. Uh, these flexibility processes, and by the way, there's a study just about to come out showing that all those who benefits came from increased psychological flexibility. I think it's passed and accept at uh, a major clinical journal. I won't mention, but if you learn these skills and you learn how to put them in people's lives in your own, you've learned something that is of such general use that it's the only thing this World Health Organization that says is fully psychologically scalable. It's the only thing they offer for a situation like this. And during COVID, what did they offer as help for dealing with COVID? It was the only thing they offered because it was the only thing that they had in their set of tested methods 
So that's the kind of thing that you probably should know. I mean, you don't have to stop doing anything else, whether it's mentalization or NLP or anything else, but it is worth time to learn these processes and methods to establish them in your life and the lives of those you serve or love. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm sending you to a place that's free and credible. That's awesome. And, and really appreciate your time. This is this has been really like truly inspiring. I'm going to listen to this episode multiple times and just continue <laughs> to take in uh, the information with that. We conclude the episode. Yes. Thank, thank you so much that Dr. Hayes. <laughs>